And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Mark chapter 9, verse 8. Lord, would you bless your people this morning? Would you bless my words, simple words, Lord, and make them good for your people? Lord, would you build up your body this morning in truth and in life? In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Happy Transfiguration Sunday. Um, Much could be said. The path that I'm going to take is that I think the Transfiguration calls us to consider our own death and life in light of Jesus' eternal glory. The Transfiguration is certainly a foretaste of Jesus' resurrected glory. So it's an opportunity to consider our own resurrection. But it may seem less obvious to at the same time consider our death. But these realities, death and resurrection, are inextricably linked. Without death, there is no resurrection. Without the passing away of the old life, there is no new life. Death is a consequence of the fall, of course, but it's not merely a consequence. Adam and Eve's exclusion from the garden or from the tree of life, was not merely a punishment. It was God's promise fulfilled and God's provision for redemption. Death gives us an opportunity like nothing else to reflect on what life is truly about. It brings to light two complementary realities. That at one level, all of this is quite fleeting, could be gone in an instant, Our life here is but a vapor. And yet at the same time, it reminds us that there's more to all of this than we can see. There's a heaviness, a gravity to life that we often neglect. When we consider our death, we're reminded that our life here is short, and yet there is more to reality than our life here. Death tells us that we have less than we think, and yet at the same time, more than we could ever fathom. Ecclesiastes talks about this. It's better to enter into a house of mourning than a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. In other words, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party, because at a funeral, we're reminded of these things. Through death, we see the weight of life. And because of death, we have hope of a resurrection. Because Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, there was hope for redemption. Because in sin, they were prohibited from partaking of eternal life, there was hope of new life, life free from sin and brokenness. Hope of being brought back into God's place. Hope of once again dwelling and delighting with our King in His good kingdom. Death both sobers us and gives us hope. And that's what I want us to have in view as we look at the transfiguration this morning. I'm not just making up this connection. This is the context in which Mark gives the account of the transfiguration. Towards the end of chapter 8, after the 
who do you say that I am exchange, Jesus begins to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the priest and the scribes, and he'll ultimately be killed. But on the third day, he'll be raised. Peter takes him to the side after this and rebukes him. Jesus, you're not going to suffer. To which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. You're not seeking the things of God, but the things of man. He goes on to teach that if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross. You too, in following me, will suffer. And if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will have it. For what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? After this, they go up the mountain. The transfiguration happens, and then they come down the mountain. As they come down the mountain, Jesus instructs them not to tell anyone what they saw until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so do we see this sandwich that he is teaching about his death and resurrection before they go up the mountain? And then as they come down the mountain, he's still teaching about his death and resurrection. And I think that because of this, we should understand our death in light of what happens on that mountain. Our death or our giving up of our life for Christ's sake, you could say, and the resurrection are all wrapped up together. They are different faces of the same mountain, you could say. The transfiguration happens after six days, or as Luke says, eight, about eight days later. And this puts us right at the turn of a week, symbolically right at the turn of creation itself. In six days, God made the heavens and the earth. And now after six days, He's giving us a glimpse of what the new heavens and the new earth are like. In verse 2, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up the mountain. They went to a high place. This was a theme in the life of Israel. As they entered the promised land, God instructed them to destroy the idols that the pagans had placed on the high mountains. They didn't carry through with this. And the prophets again and again reminded Israel of this. Israel, what have you done with the high places? Are you honoring Yahweh in these things or something else? And so as they ascend the mountain, they are moving up. This may sound silly, but it was the best analogy I could come up with. That the high places are like a press box at a sporting event. So it's certainly spatially above everything else. Like if you need to go to the press box from the stadium, you have to go up. That's the direction. But it's not simply spatially above all other things. It is the place where the things are happening, where those who are looking out over above, guiding, so to speak, what happens in the arena, sit. And so if you go up to the press box, you are moving up in honor and so as they move up the mountain they're moving up and something significant is going to take place he was transfigured before them his clothes were radiant intensely white 
as no one on earth could bleach them. They were supernaturally white. And I think it's important how we understand what's taking place here. He was not transformed before them as if he became something that he was not before. He did not change his features, take on new parts. He didn't lose his substance or his flesh. He didn't become something else. Rather, he remained who he was. He was the same Jesus that the three walked up the mountain with. And yet, there was a certain brightness added to him. He showed forth his glory, the glory of his resurrection. And in so doing, he gave Peter, James, and John, and all of his people thereafter a picture of our own future glory. Because we bear God's image, our essence, our being, will not pass away. It will not cease to exist. It will not vanish like a vapor. In our resurrection, we will be glorified, who we are. A certain brightness will be added to us. And the glory of our resurrection, truly the glory of Christ, will shine through. This picture of glory should change the way that we view death and consequently how we think about our life now. In Jesus' suffering and death, there was something taking place that Peter, James, and John could not yet fathom. How could the maker of all that is good, who directs the sun and the moon and the stars, endure suffering? As Jesus said, these were the things of God. This was the way in which God was reconciling all things under his loving rule. Because in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt bodily. Jesus' death represents a sobering reality that on the surface suggests that evil might just win, that good might just be defeated, and that maybe Jesus, as a man, is under the same authority of sin and death as we are. But instead, Jesus' suffering and death cleared the path for his resurrection. It ushered in new life, freedom for the captives, and the beginning of a new creation altogether. Think about what this means for our own death. On the surface, it may seem like some unfortunate consequence of the reality of our world, like taxes. But instead, our death marks the beginning of glory, the turn of our faith to sight, or from hope to glad fruition. Because Christ lives and reigns in life and in death, we need not fear death. Suffering is not some bleak reality that contradicts God's goodness. It is the way of Christ. It is the path that leads to glory and righteousness. In verse 4, there appeared among them Elijah and Moses, two prophets who spoke on behalf of God to the people and two priests that interceded on behalf of the people to God and two men also that went up on a mountain met with God and saw his glory pass before them. We read of Elijah's account earlier this morning. 
And Jesus definitely wants us to make these connections and see these similarities between him and Moses and Elijah. But he also wants us to see what is different. Many were saying that Jesus was Elijah, coming back to set Israel free, right? He says, others are saying that I'm Elijah. Who do you say that I am? Jesus wants us to grasp that he is not merely Elijah. He is not merely a great prophet in Israel. Elijah was not transfigured into glory on the mountain. Rather, he was a signpost, like all of the other prophets before, pointing to Christ. Additionally, many were accusing Christ of teaching things contrary to the law, of breaking the law of the Sabbath, for instance. And so Moses and Elijah, and Moses in particular's presence on the mountain, represented this authoritative stamp of approval that Jesus' life and ministry was in accordance, rather in fulfillment of the law and prophets. This is not merely another teacher of the law or another prophet. This is the lawgiver himself, the very mouth of God. Moses and Elijah were there, two men who had passed about a thousand years before, and not to mention they were talking with Jesus. It wasn't as if the three standing there, if they held their head just right, oh, that kind of looked like Moses in the distance. No, they were standing among them, talking with Jesus, who they walked up the mountain with. And so I can sympathize with their reaction and the fact that they were terrified. Peter suggests, let's make three tents. And much ink has been spilled on what we are to make of this reaction or suggestion. Perhaps Peter wanted, wanted to like symbolically capture the law, the prophets, and the gospel all on kind of an equal plane, preserve them on this high place for all eternity, rather than seeing the law and the prophets through the lens of Christ. Or perhaps Peter, in this moment, began to grasp that Christ truly would suffer And so in effort to delay that, he says, let's make tents and stay on this mountain a while. Let's savor this. Savor this moment and your glory. And I think all of those things are at play. But I I see in Peter something I see in myself. That perhaps in this moment, Peter, standing before the eternal glory of Christ, was still thinking about this temporary world, wanting to savor it or dodge its hurdles, wanting to protect what I have physically around me or in my bank account, rather than turning my attention to Christ. I think his proposal of a temporary shelter is representative of his faith and trust in the things of this world rather than the things of God. And instead, a cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. As if God said to Peter, you do not need a tent. I, with my very essence, will cover you. The tents and tabernacles of the law and prophets were but a picture, a foretaste, or a schoolmaster. Until the time of the new heavens and the new earth. But now, my kingdom is at hand. 
Behold, the king stands before you now. Just as I made the world in six days, I will one day take you up into the high mountain of heaven, wherein there will be no tents or temporary fixtures, for you will stand in my eternal glory, covered by my goodness and righteousness. There will be no need for sun or moon, for like the one standing before you, I will fill the world with the light of my glory. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, until you are resurrected in glory, I have given you my only son. In him, you live and move and have your being. And so abide in him. Listen to him. My friend Salim speaks many languages. One of them is Arabic. And we were having a conversation one day and um, he pointed out that I was being quiet and I responded that I enjoy listening to him. He's a great storyteller. I enjoy listening. And he kind of laughed. Then he asked, do you listen at home? I said, yeah, well, I I try to. He laughed some more and I, I wasn't quite getting the joke until he explained to me that in Arabic, the concept of listening and obeying and submitting to authority are all wrapped in one. And I think that's something we miss out on in English. God is not saying simply to take note of the words of Christ. He's saying submit your life to his authority. Follow him. This is the one in whom all of the prophets and law find their rest. Serve his kingdom. Live in light of his glory. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no longer anyone with them but Jesus only. As if they had no other choice but to focus on Christ. In light of the glory of Christ, the other things fell away. As if this whole experience, this whole event that had unfolded before them had happened just so they could fix their eyes more fully on who Christ was. And this is my hope for us as we consider the transfiguration this morning. Christ did not remove Peter, James, and John from the world in order to show his glory to them. Nor does he do so with us. As we're reminded of the fragility of our life for this world, may we conclude not merely that we belong somewhere else, but that there is someone whose goodness and glory will one day make things very good. Our longing for heaven or desire to be free from suffering should not lead us to separate ourselves from this world. Christ did not put off his flesh to show his glory. Rather, he put on flesh to make himself known to us. And he showed his glory through that flesh. Jesus did not desire that his people would be taken out of the world, but rather that we would remain in the world and for the sake of the world, live in light of his glory. May we be a people that does just that. Jesus, holy and righteous, has made us to be holy. And he sends us into the world so that the things of this world 
in the things of this world, his glory would be made known. Through the joys and sorrows of our own marriages, through difficulties in raising children, through loneliness and singleness, or the loss of those dear to us, through our diligence amidst a challenging work environment, through our struggles in our schoolwork, through our wrestling within our own soul, through our own weakness and the brokenness of this world, through our own death, Christ makes his glory known. And this is what Christ intends to do through you and through me and collectively through his whole body, the church, to give the world a glimpse of his glory and goodness, to give the world an opportunity to reflect on the reality of our death, the weight of our life, and the glory of God's beloved Son. Lord, would you make us into a people that can say with sincerity that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.